Please turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. In this chapter, God is giving us a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. When God will judge the nations and God's people are going to melt down swords and spears and turn them into gardening tools. Notice Micah chapter 4 verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that, he, that we may walk in his paths. And then he, he points out Two of God's ways, two of God's paths. One has to do with war, and one has to do with economics. First, he shall judge between many peoples and decide for strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All right, so the first way that we see God's new kingdom fleshed out is when it comes to violence. And, and this is a wonderful thing to talk about in this particular community where the Mennonites have taken this to heart, right? And they've said, because that's what it will be, it implicates the way we live now, right? Isn't this one of the basic issues behind the Mennonite commitment to nonviolence? It's what will be we have a responsibility to know what the new heavens and new earth will be like, and that demands of us a certain way of living out our ethical lives now. So that's the first point he makes about the new heavens and the new earth. But notice the second point. Verse 4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. In other words, in the new creation, there will not only be an end to violence, there will also be an, an economy in which every person has access to the factors of production. That's what it meant then to sit under your own fig tree and vine. Now, do you see what I've set us up for? If we're going to take the peaceable kingdom to come, and use it to implicate our ethical lives now, we must also take the equity, the economic equity of the kingdom to come and implicate our economic lives with it now. You can't just drill down into the issues of violence here because this is a whole kingdom. It's not just about how we hurt or don't hurt one another, it's also how we hurt or don't hurt one another economically. And notice, the practice about violence is the transformation of swords and plowshares into gardening tools, and the issue behind economics is the restoration of every person to the factors of production. Now look, we know that there is ultimately no security 
economic or otherwise, apart from God. But God has designed humans to experience security in his world through having an economic stake in their neighborhood. That is a fundamental principle when it comes to God's plan for economies. Now let's see how God required Israel to put the new creation economic policy of every person having a stake in the means of production. I want to show you now how God took the future and pulled it all the way back into ancient Israel laws. All right, turn to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33, verse 54. Here's Israel. They're about to go into the promised land. And God says, all right, when you get there, Numbers 33, 54, you shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger tribe, you shall give a larger inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. All right, I'm going to give you two kind of practical ways that the kingdom of God's economic policy was translated into an on-the-ground reality. The first, as Israel moved into the promised land, the first was God told Israel to divide up the land among families so that everyone got approximately the same amount. That is, God required Israel to begin with an equitable starting point. Second, Turn to Leviticus, one book to the left, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. What's that come to? 49. I mean, we should be able to do this one. I mean, in light of what the subject is. So that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Here's what's going on. Over the rest of Leviticus chapter 25, and we're not going to read through all of it, God goes into more detail, and here's the gist. God required Israel every year to push a giant economic reset button every 50 years. Now remember, the ancient Israelite economy was primarily, I mean almost exclusively, agricultural. So practically everyone in Israel was a farmer. So, go, so when the reset button was pushed on the land and you went back to the land, you were going back to the family business that you lost because of drought or because you were lazy or because bad economic choices or whatever happened over the last 49 years or 48 or 47 or 6, whatever. Suddenly, you were restored to the family's means of production. A family's survival depended, 
in ancient Israel on their being able to control land for farming. Without access to farmable land, a family would have no place to stand economically. If a person lost their land, they couldn't go and find a job waiting tables or working IT. They became a landless peasant in a society where owning land was your way of having a stake in the factors of production. So in other words, becoming landless meant a loss in the stake of the factors of production. So when you became a landless peasant, they were, you were often sucked into an oppressive sharecropping cycle somewhat similar to the situation faced by people in the American South in the early 20th century. Now, mark Leviticus 25, but jump way to the right and find Job chapter 24. The book of Job, or contextually speaking, Job 24. You like that, Tom? I mean, would you have done it? Okay, Job chapter 24. Here is a description of the horrifying plight of landless people in ancient Israel. Job 24, starting in verse 4. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather fodder in the field. They glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. You, you need some money? Give me your child as a security deposit. They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves among the olive robes of the wicked. They make oil. They tread the wine presses, but they suffer thirst, right? So they're, they're like making something to drink, but they're dying of thirst. You see, poverty in the ancient world was brutal. I'm reading a fascinating novel um, in the Matthew Shardlake series right now, and it's set in medieval England during the enclosure period where sheep farming was getting more lucrative than um, agriculture. And it, it, what happened to the poor at this moment in England's history is this. I mean, they were just dying in the street because the economy was, was, was based on the land and they were no longer given access to the land. This is a devastating picture. If you wanted to avoid poverty, land was everything. That's why God required every 50 years a reset button on the land because it was a life and death issue. Remember tonight, we're learning a fundamental economic principle in God's kingdom. When it comes to God's plan for economies, God designed humans to experience security 
through having an economic stake in the neighborhood. You have to learn that. We've got to learn that. Even if we're not economists, we've got to learn that. We can't just go with the flow and let the way capitalism shapes our economic thoughts to just be kind of in the background. We have to learn this, that God designed humans to experience security in his world through an economic stake in the neighborhood. And that means having access to the factors of production. So going back to Leviticus chapter 25, God gave ancient Israel a series of laws that prevented any Israelite family from being generationally disenfranchised from the factors of production. So if you worked hard and you saved and you acquired access to new farms and fields, and for 49 years, uh, Laura was the Proverbs 31 woman, and I was not, I spent that same period of time not living like Laura, not living out the ethical life of Proverbs 31, but instead getting drunk and gambling and losing my land. And Laura, through her thrift and her wisdom and her prudence, she prospered. When the Jubilee trumpet sounded, what happened to my children? They were set free. From my foolishness. Now why would God do that? Why would God care about Spencer Sloan, Silas Shea, and Shelby and their children? So much so that he just gets all involved in the economic policy of Israel. Why? What does that show us about God? Well, first of all, let let me just... for, For the raging Republicans, let me just let you off the hook for a second. I promise I'm not about to trick you into socialism, all right? So if if you can just trust me on that for a minute. What does this tell us about God? What we're seeing is that Yahweh cares infinitely more about every every family having the opportunity to provide for themselves by participating in the economy. He cares more about that than he cares about any one family's right to acquire more, whether through thrift or theft. Now, that's something we need to write down and own it and let it grow into our bones. That God cares infinitely more about every family having opportunity for, to participate in the economy than he cares about any one family's right to acquire more. So we're seeing that when King Yahweh wrote the land use policy, which was at essentially the economic policy, In Israel, a fundamental, non-negotiable economic principle he worked with was that every family was to have an economic place to stand. The year of Jubilee, when implemented, allowed every family in the community whose members were willing to work, it gave them a chance to escape multi-generational poverty by giving them access not to charity but to the means of production. Now, notice how this approach doesn't fit either with conservative Republican typical economic policy or typical liberal Democratic economic policy. 
After all, on the one hand, in contrast to a typically conservative approach to economics today, the Jubilee Law radically restricted the invisible hand of the market. And it undermined the effectiveness of economic incentives by restricting the sale of land permanently and thus placing limits on people's ability to capitalize on their investment. That doesn't, this, this law challenges the conservative, the traditional, kind of the stereotypical conservative economic policy today. But on the other hand, it also challenges a stereotypical liberal approach to economics today because the Jubilee Law did not create, do you hear me, create? That's my R's, they come back every now and then. It did not create equity by the redistribution of wealth through taxation. It doesn't do that. Instead, it created equity by restoring the factors of production, not to the state, not to the community, but to Israel's equitable starting point where each family had access to their own family farm. And the fact is that if you screwed up on year one, you lived with the consequences. Like it, it wasn't this giant bailout thing that you could feel like it's going to always be there. You, you had to deal with your bad decisions. Now, we're not Middle Eastern farmers in a Bronze Age agrarian economy. So we can't do this. There are serious differences between our economy and our economic possibilities and the economy that God was dealing with in Leviticus chapter 25. So what do we do with that? Well, what we don't do with it is just walk away from it. I mean, like what we don't do with it is just close the Old Testament and say, well, it's, it's uh, not what we're doing today. No, this is still God's word. It's still God's revelation. It, God is always the smartest person in the room. It, this is always the best route. So what we do is we need to learn to see the vision it cast and then to stand within that vision-orienting place. We need to learn, in other words, to let this be a paradigm. A paradigm that challenges our society's current economic instincts. We need to creatively imagine how to bend our economic lives toward those people who have been generationally disenfranchised from the means of production. That's the paradigm. How do we bend our economic lives toward them? We've got to ask the tough questions about what it would mean for the marginalized in America and in Harrisonburg to be re-enfranchised into the economy, empowered to steward their gifts and abilities, restored to economic stakes in the city and in the country. And to do this, we have two tasks. Number one, we have to learn the painful, difficult economic history of our nation. We need to learn, uh, Chris Johnson, an African-American pastor in Harrisonburg, tells me, Aubrey, there's always two histories, the one you people tell and the one my people know. Now, this room, needs to learn a history that most likely has not implicated this room. Not in the negative way. 
Um, I'm going to start with two particular groups in America who've suffered economic marginalization. I'm sure there are other groups and certainly other individuals who don't fit in either of these groups, but time is limited and we have to start somewhere. Number one, Native Americans. In the 15th century, Western Christianity systematically disenfranchised Native populations. Am I getting that right, Spencer? Thank you. For example, in 1452, Pope Nicholas V wrote that European Christians had the full support of the church to, quote, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed, and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by those people, we could reduce their person to perpetual slavery and apply to appropriate to himself and his successors their kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to your own use and profit. There's no perspective like the past, right? In 1823, the Supreme Court of the United States made that law. The Supreme Court essentially argued that by stepping foot in North America, European settlers had the absolute right to the land on which they stood. In other words, your wealth... is fundamentally rooted in a history of pushing native communities off their vines and fig trees. Of saying no to Micah 4.4. We're not going to let that ethic come into them. Now, as many of you know, the Trail of Tears is just one example of this wholesale rejection of God's economic principle. In 1838, the U.S. government removed 17,000 Cherokee men, women, and children from their homes, forcing them to walk from the southeastern United States to the land west of the Mississippi. Scholars estimate that more than half of them died as a result of this forced relocation. In the book, American Holocaust, that's the title of it, David Stannard argues that the destruction of the Indians in the Americas was far and away, quote, the most massive act of genocide in the history of the world. More than 95% of the Native American populations were killed. Now remember, we're trying to learn tonight a fundamental economic principle When it comes to God's plan for economies, God designed humans to experience security in his world through access and ownership of the means of production. Now, the United States, for all of its gifts, and there are many, but America, like your family, is not all gift. There's a mixture of goodness and brokenness. And so the first thing we must do, if we're going to, read the Bible with integrity is we're going to then look at our history. And when it comes to the intentional economic disenfranchisement of Native Americans, we must know it has left serious wounds. 
Native American communities have incomes that are less than half the general population and often experience unemployment rates many times higher than the rest of the country. The Blackfoot Reservation in Montana, for instance, has experienced unemployment rates as high as 69%. Harrisonburg's is 3.9. In the year 2000, Native Americans' median wealth was equal to 86 8.7% of the median wealth of all other Americans. Now, when it comes to our nation and its economy, we have committed treason against the king on this issue. We have rebelled. We have transgressed. We have been wicked. We have moved against God's economic wisdom with regard to Native Americans. And that is something we must, as a nation, deal with. And perhaps some child of this church will do the hard work to develop the political skills required to lead our nation into righteousness. It's a matter of injustice. God has not forgotten it, even if we have. And it's a massive problem. And if some of you are inspired to deal with cancer, go after this one too. It's going to require the best skills we can produce. How do you undo this? I don't know, but we've got a responsibility to do it. If we can put a man on the moon, if we can apply all of our wisdom and learning and skills and knowledge and resources, your job, young people, is to find the needs of the world, the priorities of God, and then go for it. This is certainly one of them. That's one example. Example number two. We don't have a Native American population here so much, so that was just buttering you up. Now let's go closer to home. The case of African Americans. Now, of course, the entire slave system deprived African Americans of the rewards of their labor, to say nothing of depriving them of the ability to gain wealth. And while the Civil War ended slavery... It didn't end the economic disenfranchisement of the African-American population. Now, look, if you think I'm like drifted off into some social justice world, absolutely, that's what I've done. Because how do you read these economic principles of the Old Testament without then looking? See, the hard thing, the, the bad thing to do is to say, oh, we're not an agrarian society and just move right on into some kind of pietistic quiet time. But if we use that as a paradigm then we have to look at our society and we have to drill down into our history and we have to figure out, is there generational disenfranchisement? And the two big categories in America are the Native American population and the African American population. Here are the four economic sins America committed against the African American community for which we have a moral debt today. Number one, after slavery. <laughs> after slavery, four more. African Americans were excluded from the Homestead Act of 1862. Does anybody know this is land rush? Like, basically, it went like this. Our government developed a, a wonderful policy, where, really wonderful, where pioneers could purchase 160 acres of public land in the western U.S. for a very small price if they put in five years of living on it and working it. This is a wonderful, creative economic policy. It should have been done. Here's the problem. If you were African-American, you couldn't do it. Only white people could do it. That was the problem. Now, here's the devastating result. 
one quarter of the current U.S. population age 25 and older has a legacy of property ownership and assets that can be directly linked to the Homestead Act of 1862. It wasn't just a thing then. The house I bought on 255 Franklin Street, I could trace for you how the Homestead Act of 1862 gave me an, a, a part of my finances that enabled me to buy that house because I'm white. I mean, this, <laughs> Second, from the 1930s through the 1960s, African Americans were shut out of the single greatest federal wealth building initiative in our nation's history. FHA backed mortgages. All these guys coming home from the war. Our nation did a, an amazing thing. It figured out how to, how to nurture the development of wealth. However, through the widespread practice of redlining, African Americans could not participate. Once again, the two greatest creations of private wealth in America that you are benefiting from, our federal government refused Slaves we had stolen and their children from access to those wealth-creating initiatives. Third, because of their lack of access to FHA-backed mortgages, African Americans were exposed to vicious predatory lenders. What happened is that what, when an African American would go and try to get a loan in the bank, redlining would say, oh, I'm sorry, there's no loan available. But you've got enough money to do it. You've got everything the white person has to do it. But because you're black, you can't do it. And this created the only option called purchase by contract. This is a predatory agreement that combined all the responsibilities of homeownership with all the disadvantages of renting while offering the benefits of neither. In other words, the FHA adopted a racial policy equivalent to the Nuremberg Laws. Keep in mind, many African Americans living today have experienced this. This is not ancient history. For example, between the years 2000 and 2013, Wells Fargo and Bancor South were both practicing race-based predatory lending and redlining in Memphis, Tennessee. Fourth, in the 1950s and the 1960s, racist government housing policies destroyed black homes and communities in the name of urban renewal. Here's how it happened in Harrisonburg. In the year of our Lord, 1958, our city developed Project R4. How many of you have heard of R4? Okay, if I was asking this many African Americans in Harrisonburg, See, there's a history we know. 
And there's the other history. Here's R4, 1958, Harrisonburg. Our city targeted a 28-acre area that lay between Main Street, Gay Street, Rock Street, and Johnson Street. The city took photos of all the buildings in the area so that they could be appraised and their owners reimbursed when the city forced them to move. It was an early lesson in, the, in our city's use of eminent domain laws. Homes were not the only... Oh, then they bulldozed all the houses. Not just houses. They didn't just bulldoze and burn houses. They also bulldozed and burned African-American churches and businesses, as well as the city's Jewish synagogue. Residents were moved into some of the city's first housing projects. And you know what the land was put to use for? Today, it's the county office building, 7-Eleven, Roses, AutoZone, and their giant parking lots. All told, in the name of getting rid of urban blight, our city developed these beautiful urban oases. And if you know the areas I just named. <laughs> we redeveloped 40 acres and forcibly relocated 200 families. Do you think if our city decided to do eminent domain with battleground estates, they would be able to do it? You think they could do it with Old Town? No. Not a chance. We have access to the levers of power. We wouldn't let that happen. Now, what's the result of all of this? Well, largely because of these and other economic disenfranchising moves, the median wealth among white families in America today is roughly 11 times higher than that of black and Hispanic families in America today. Eleven times. That's what happens when a nation first enslaves, and then when slavery is illegal, just translates into other types of laws, economic exploitation. You wake up, and you just take the statistical median incomes of white people and African-Americans and white people are 11 times higher. Do you think it's because white people are 11 times smarter? Do you think it's because we're 11 times like luckier? Do we think it's because we're 11 times more thrifty? The Pew Research Center reports that as of 2013, the median net worth of white households in America is $141,900. The median net worth of black households in America is $11,000. And it's a result of sin. <laughs> but not the sin we often want to kind of analyze on an individual basis when we're looking at people. This is the reason God required Israel to have an economic reset button because this is what happens. So what do we do about this? Two things, remember? Two things. First, we have to learn the history and repent of it. We need to follow in Nehemiah's footsteps and not only have the guts to repent of our own personal sins, but the sins of our fathers. That's the first thing. You have to learn the history so that we can repent. Not only of our own sin, but the sins of our fathers. 
The second thing we have to do is we have to commit ourselves to costly, sacrificial actions in pursuit of economic justice. We can't just say, oh, we're sad. We have to do something about it. We have to bend our economic lives toward the disenfranchised. In other words, like John the Baptist told the Pharisees, we must not only feel bad, we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're responsible for that. We are responsible to to bear the fruit of repentance. Now, here's some really good news. All over America, Christians have been falling under this conviction. All over the world, God's people are finding creative and imaginative ways to bend their economic lives toward the generationally disenfranchised. And so now what I'm going to do is give some amazing examples from all different segments of of Christianity, businesses, churches, families, and it's just going to be a smorgasbord. Pick something. Okay, here's some ways that traditional existing businesses have learned to bend their economic power toward the multi-generational disenfranchised communities. One way is that some traditional businesses are changing their business model to a profit-sharing model. Another way that some traditional businesses are doing it is they're turning their businesses into worker-owner cooperatives. A third way that some existing businesses are doing it is they're developing employee stock ownership programs. Janelle and I, one of our best friends, Keith and Terry Miley, This was a key factor in Terry's life. Her mom went to work for a little grocery store, and that grocery store had an employee stock ownership program, and it directly changed that family's economic story. Now, all of these are ways that some businesses are able to put into practice the fundamental economic principle, which is this. We must give people an access to the means of production. Now, not all businesses can adopt any of those models. There are many businesses that none of those models work for them. But those are three models that some people have come up with. All right. Other people are helping economically disenfranchised people by helping those people create new businesses through, here's the factor, the key, impact investing. Impact investing. This is one of the coolest innovations Christians are using to practice God's economic wisdom. Impact investing, the way I'm using it, it's it's financial investments that accept a lower financial return in exchange for a higher social impact. This isn't charity, And it isn't good business, it's a third way. One of these is Kiva. Any of you heard of Kiva? This is one of the greatest ways to participate in impact investing. Basically, Kiva is an organization that allows individuals like you and me to help crowdfund 0% loans for entrepreneurs who wouldn't be able to get financing from a traditional bank. It's a way of saying to Wells Fargo in Memphis... Up yours. Or 
whatever the Christian alternative is. Lenders, you can contribute as little as $25, making Kiva the easiest way to give impact investing a try. Just go online, Kiva, K-I-V-A. To date, Kiva has made loans to 2.2 million borrowers in 82 countries with a 97.1% repayment rate. This is a way that even your children for Christmas could take $25 and invest. Like how, you can't just assume, we cannot assume our kids and grandkids are going to learn the, put the Jubilee laws into practice if we don't actually give them tactical, concrete options to do this. Uh, often entrepreneurs need access to larger loans than something like Kiva can offer. One of the cutting-edge efforts to address this is a, is a brand-new thing that's happening called the Friends and Family Certificate of Deposit. You can Google that to find out what that's all about. Another one is something called a DAF, Donor Advised Funds. I know a number of families in our church that are doing this. They're tip, they, the way it typically works is it's run through a community foundation or a similar organization. Individuals make a donation to the fund. They receive a tax credit for their donation. And then they can direct the fund to distribute money to actual charitable causes later down the road. One of the great things happening in Harrisonburg. There are several of these starting where some very clever, successful business people in Harrisonburg are fighting to keep the wealth created in Harrisonburg invested in the community of Harrisonburg. Uh, a fourth kind of way of impact investing is called an IDA, Individual Development Account Program. This is a way to provide a low-income person who's gone through a financial literacy program the chance to open a savings account. And then when some agreed-upon goal is reached, an outside organization like a church matches the savings account two to one so that that person can obtain an asset that a bank wouldn't help them obtain, like a house or small business capital or education or a car. Okay, so first I talked about some traditional businesses, some things they're doing. Then I talked about some impact investing kind of ways people are figuring out. Here's a third way to use the Jubilee laws as a paradigm. Invest in education. Because ours is now an education economy. And remember, we've been talking about this week after week. We have historically low unemployment figures. But remember, unemployment only measures one of three categories. One category is employment, people who want a job and have a job. Second category is unemployment. But remember, unemployment, anytime the news says unemployment rates, it's only talking about people who are looking for a job and don't have a job. But we have this massive figure of people who've stopped looking for a job. And some, there's all kinds of work going on about why is this, uh, this, it's a huge figure. I mean, it's astronomical right now. And we don't yet know all the reasons for it. But some of the most kind of credible theories behind it right now is that our, our economy has shifted into an educational economy and, 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 a, and a technological economy. And people who are undereducated, when they lose their job, the only new job available is at such a low wage, it's so demoralizing that they can't really move back into the economy. Now, with that reality, one of the ways we can take the paradigm of the Jubilee Law seriously 
is, in, is work at the, level, at the cold face of education. We live in a knowledge economy. I think of Michelle Kood's work in ESL. The ESL, the ESL initiatives in our community, they're trying to work to redress, to redress this disenfranchisement. Many Christians are beginning to see that teaching in struggling schools is a kingdom calling. We need young people who are clever enough to become doctors and lawyers to look at the board and say, the needs of the world, the priorities of God, I'm going to be a school teacher. And I'm going to leave some of the profit. We learned this principle last week. One of the ways, young people, we learned last week, the gleaning laws. One of the ways you can leave profit on the table is you can take a job that over the course of your life will not generate wealth, but it's a higher social impact. This is a thing we've got to do. We've got to, we've got to, Christians have to rise up. And go into one of the most difficult missionary fields in America today. The public schools. Ground zero for empowering people. Is education. One of the ways is, is GED programs. Another ways is the vocational training path. What about our church? Okay, so I've talked about businesses. I've talked about. Families, what about our church? I am longing for the day, and I hope it is within the next 12 to 18 months, we're closing in, when we will develop a diaconate. And our diaconate will mobilize our congregation to do some of this stuff. Our church gave $70,000 last year to the Rector's Discretionary Fund. Can you imagine if some really clever people in this church, we laid hands on them, we anointed them and set them apart as deacons and said, your job is to find some of these amazing opportunities in our world to, that, that can be turned toward the economically disenfranchised in our community. And let's go for it. To mobilize our congregation to invest our time and talents and wealth in entrepreneurship for the disenfranchised of Harrisonburg. What about our own houses? Well, I just encourage you to invest some of your money. You don't have to do it all. But what if you invested some of your money for social impact? Use one of the ways I mentioned earlier. That's one option. Second option is this. Please, please, somebody in your family... Get involved in education in Harrisonburg. Please, somebody, volunteer at Spotswood. All right. In our first session, we saw that there are two kingdoms waging war for our allegiance. And we, like Rahab, have to answer the question, whose side am I on? Rahab chose the kingdom of Yahweh because she believed at the end of the day, when the dust settled, God's kingdom would still be standing. And when it comes to money, this is the first issue. Will we commit to being in God's kingdom? Will we commit to learn to do the hard work of thinking from Scripture into our complex, very different economy today? 
In our second session, we saw that idolatry is the fundamental human problem. And of all the gods we are tempted to serve, money is one of the most seductive. And when money becomes an idol, it will eat us alive. But God offers a way to resist the idolatry of money. And that is cross-shaped financial generosity. Matthew 6, 19 to 21 is a passage every American should memorize. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be. Cross-shaped generosity jams a spoke in the relentless. There it is again. Relentless wheel of idolatry. It casts down money from the throne of our hearts. When we give, the Spirit inhabits our generosity and works to reshape us in the image of our generous God. In our third session, we began to take up the issue of the poor. And we started at the beginning by setting our sights on our community. Every road in the economy of God's kingdom runs through the creation of community. And so when it comes to the complex issues of scarcity and lack and poverty, we saw that God teaches us to start by becoming the kind of church where the poor, the middle class, and the upper class can experience real, true relationships with one another. And to do this, God has given us a very practical command, eat together. The starting point is who's welcome not only to eat from your table, you know, where you take food left over and give it to a soup kitchen or something, but who's welcome to eat at your table. And in particular, God calls us to participate, we saw that week, in economically oriented worship that culminates in a feast where a wild diversity of socioeconomic groups enjoy the bounties of food and drink together in a riotous good time. And we're going to do that. Again and again in the life of our church, by the grace of God. So economic justice is very important, but supper is essential. Then last week, we saw that we need to bend our economic lives through work toward those who have no work. And this week, we're seeing we need to bend our economic lives to the generationally disenfranchised. And I think these are the starting blocks For us to think economically, here's a challenge. It's hard. It's hard. I think, honestly speaking, that talking to conservatives about money is like talking to liberals about sex. We think that what we think about money is just self-evidently righteous. Our church, pray for us. By the grace of God, we're going to hire an associate pastor this summer. And his job description is spiritual formation and mercy. And it's so that all this stuff I've been banging on about at the level of ideas, we as a church will be led to put it into practice. 